Welcome to the Glory Podcast. We're so glad that you're listening. Our mission is to declare God's glory. Please visit glorychurchkc.com to hear all of our other messages. Good morning. Ooh, a little bit of delay. Good morning. <laughs> Uh, so yes, I'm really excited uh, to be teaching today. Um, Glory Church has been my church family for about a year now, I think, a little over a year, um, and we love what Glory Church is doing um, in Kansas City. Um, I'm really ready for 2020 to be over with, and I feel like we're rounding the curve, but in the nature of 2020, this could be like the thing that is like going to break it, right? Like November's here, Tuesday's coming. I'm a little worried. Like, I'm a little stressed out. I tease people, uh, pastors, when they, so this isn't the first time I've preached before. I've been invited by other pastors as well. And I really think, this is my conspiracy theory, I think that they find the hardest chapters in the Bible, and that's when they, you know, invite the guest pastor in kind of thing. Like, hey, will you come teach this? Uh, The last time Greg tried to do this to me, I actually lucked out. I got COVID, which is good because um, it was over blessed are the persecuted. And so like nothing, nothing beats like coming and telling you how you're going to be persecuted for your faith. You'll be killed for your faith. You could lose your job because of your faith. Like that's not a very uplifting message. So when Greg invited me this Sunday, he's like, you can preach about whatever you want. I was like, all right, maybe my theory's not true. And then I realized it was election Sunday before the second civil war breaks out next week. So here we go. Uh, So I am really excited about this morning. Um, uh, I promise I'm not like, I I didn't intentionally do this. Um, Go ahead and throw up the passage that we'll be reading today. Luke 2020. I swear, like, I promise I didn't pick this passage because it's 2020. Um, This passage goes over uh, giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. Like, a lot of us, I think, are familiar with that passage, and uh, that's why I did. I was like, it's Election Sunday. We're going to talk about giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. And when I first heard this in the correct way, actually, I can't say the first time. I've heard this passage many times, but oftentimes it's this idea of paying your taxes, submitting to authority. Um, God put that person in authority, so you have to submit to that person in authority. It's kind of like that type of messaging. Um, And that's not what I'm going to talk about today. Today I'm going to talk about the image of God, and I'm going to use this passage because of the last line that Jesus says in the, la- in, in the end of this passage. And it just so happens to be Luke 20, 20 through, oh, 26. <laughs> Typo, sorry. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and start reading here. I'm going to start with the first part. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. And I'm going to pause here. It's going to be a little bit as we get through this. I want to talk about who they are, right? So they, we can gather from the other two Gospels that talk about this passage, is the Pharisees and the Herodians. And I knew a lot about the Pharisees. I don't know a lot about the Herodians, so I had to do some research to find out some of that. And um, I related to them. So the Pharisees are a religious people. They're spiritual and they're politically conservative. They believe in the Jewish law that authority comes from the line of David, from, uh, that, that 
authority and kingship will be restored through the line of David. The ironic thing is, is that they're talking to a man, Jesus, who's from the line of David, actually from the line of David, and they don't believe that he's the one that authority is going to be restored to, and they're trying to catch him. We'll find that out later. So that's the Pharisees, religious, spiritual people, Jewish, politically conservative. Then on the other end, you have the Herodians. They also, Jewish, religious, spiritual people, but politically progressive. So they actually find their authority with the Roman Empire. They think that if we're actually going to make this religion thing work, we have to be getting along with the people in charge. And so they would be the type who would say, um, you know, God put the Roman emperor in charge, and therefore that's who we need to get along with. And so you have the, um, now when I say politically conservative, politically, politically progressive, that's different for them back then in that time than I'm talking about in today's age. But you had two religious people, spiritual people, one on one end of the political spectrum, one on the other end of the political spectrum. How many of you all can relate with that? Probably at your family Thanksgivings, right? right? Like even in this own room, like we're all religious, spiritual people, but very divided in regards to which political side do we sit on. So we can relate with that. Let's go on to the next thing. Um, they pretended to be sincere so that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Now here's something unique, where there's these two religious people who don't get along often. They're usually on complete opposite pages, right? Um, but they're coming together for one reason, to trip up this guy named Jesus. This guy named Jesus is making claims that really irks them. Things like, I'm the temple, and I'm going to destroy the temple, and I'm going to rebuild the temple in three days. Things like, I'm the son of God, claiming divinity and equal with, with, the son of, with God. And so they really don't like him. And so their goal is to try thinking of a way to catch him and get him into hot water so they can turn him into the Roman authorities outside of the church, right? So the Roman authorities are outside of the church. So they're like, this guy, he's religious, but we need to get him in trouble so we can hand him off to the government, let, him, let them take care of him. So what do they do? So they asked him, go ahead and go to the next slide. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now, in the very beginning, it says they pretended to be sincere. This is that part. Don't, don't let them fool you. They are pretending to be sincere right now. And then the trick question comes on the next slide. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, I want to pause here for a second, and I want to think about... Um, in our own political climate, right? You watch CNN or Fox News, and within like the first three to five minutes, whoever is being interviewed by the news person, they're trying to catch them, right? Like, it's, if it's a politician, if it's a local mayor, if it's a senator, like, they're on camera, and the news interview person is trying to, like, like dangle a question out there, a divisive, loaded question that's going to get this public person who's in the public eye in trouble the next day so that way they can have it on their headlines on their website tomorrow morning and be like look what this person said that's the type of question that these guys are trying to look for they're like what type of question can we ask him that's going to get him caught and the question they came up for is is, is it lawful for us to give tribute to caesar or not and what this is referring to is taxes now Today, we may not think that's, you know, so divisive, right? Like, if someone were to ask me, Brandon, do I, do I pay my taxes? I'm going to be like, you should probably do that. That's, that's an important part about being an adult, and we need to pay our taxes. Um, 
But in this time period, it was forced upon the people and it was not so accepted. The people just didn't willingly give up their taxes. Maybe we should bring that back, by the way. Just kidding. Don't do that. Um, so what they're trying to do is get him caught so that when Jesus says what they're hoping to say is, no, don't pay your taxes, my, the authorities with, with my father kind of thing, then they can be like, Roman government, he's not paying his taxes. Um, to give you a little bit more context about this question, 20 years before, so we're, we're here in this moment in time, right, of this passage, 20 minutes, 20 minutes, 20 years before the passage in Galilee, Jesus's home region, there was a tax revolt over this exact question. Um, and in that tax revolt, when the dust all settled, they counted 2,000 Galileans were crucified by the Roman government because they refused to pay their taxes. Crucified being publicly hung on the cross in the way that they uh, criminally executed people back then. Not just that, not just 2,000, but there's actually 6,000 people who were then committed to a life of slavery for the Roman government because they wouldn't pay their taxes. So this is a loaded, divisive question. And Jesus, in this passage, finds himself right in the middle of it because there's still another 30 years of tax revolts. So 30 years after this passage, um, Jesus has been crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. The church is now going through Acts. Um, and we're 30 years after this passage. And there's what's called the First Jewish-Roman War. And if you thought 2,000 people getting crucified was a lot, in the first Roman, Jewish-Roman War, 1.1 million people died. This is in a time when there's not a whole lot of people in the world, so that's a fairly large percentage of people that died then. 100,000 got committed to slavery for the Roman government because they wouldn't pay their taxes. So what I'm trying to say in this, in this statement here, in this question, is it's not just to us, like, do we pay our taxes or not? It's, do we pay our taxes? And depending on your answer... Are you willing to die for that answer? Are you willing to be enslaved for that answer? And so it's a very heavy, loaded, divisive question. All right, let's go to the next slide here. But Jesus perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, show me a denarius. All right, now the denarius is a coin that they used to actually pay taxes. So you could only pay taxes back then with the single coin, the denarius. It was used to pay taxes. Let's go ahead and toss that coin up. I have a picture of it. Oh, good, it shows up well here. I didn't know how well that was going to show up. Um, so the, a, little, a little bit about this denarius. We know that that's Caesar's face because we're about ready to get into the famous line, like, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? But actually the part that really drove the Jews nuts was the inscription around Caesar. And what that says is Caesar, son of the divine, divine meaning God. And so uh, the Jewish religion had a lot of beef with this fact that this Roman emperor was saying that he was son of God. And now, just to add to the layer of that divisive question, they're giving it to Jesus thinking, oh man, we really got Jesus now. Like we've heard Jesus say he's the son of God. And so now he's going to be like, yeah, Caesar's not the son of God. And then they're going to say, Roman government, we got him. Take him to jail. So it's a further just to, to load that question up. So let's go ahead and go to the next slide then. See what Jesus says. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? I want you all to remember those words. Likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, 
Next slide. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And let's go one more, and I'll pause. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling, awestruck, silenced at his answer, they became silent. They missed it. Jesus was crafty. He was able to get out of it. Why was he able to get out of it? So if they weren't so awestruck, if they weren't so uh, speechless, the very follow-up question should have been, well, whose likeness and inscription do we bear? Whose likeness and inscription, or sorry, who's, who bears the likeness and inscription of God? The answer is us. But the question is, well, who bears the likeness and inscription of God? If we're supposed to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and on Caesar's coin is the likeness and inscription of Caesar, then we're supposed to also give to God the things that have the likeness and inscription of God. And the reason why they were speechless is because in Genesis 1, I'm going to read it to you guys so you don't have to flip around too much. In Genesis 1, in the Pharisees and the Herodians, Herodians, they would have known this. This is the very beginning of their Torah, the thing that they're so familiar with. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who bears the likeness and inscription of God? It's man and woman. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So who bears the likeness and inscription of God? We do. What does that mean? (laughs) What does it mean to bear an image? To bear an image is going to hate this, but it's the only way I could think of describing it. To bear an image is, is to image it, right? Like it's, if you have an image of something, it's, it's the image of what that thing is. It's to bring forth into full reality whatever that thing is that it's supposed to be imaging. And so to be an image of God is to be a reflection, a radiation of. It's to, when people see you, when people hear you talk, when people learn how you think and hear what you're feeling, you're supposed to be radiating and, and, and showing them the image of God as an image bearer of God. So with Caesar's coin, right? Like uh, Caesar was on the coin, and so when people saw the coin, when they read the coin, when um, they had the coin in their possession when they earned the coin from their work, uh, when they paid with the coin for their taxes, Caesar was glorified. Every time they thought about him, used him, talked about him, read him, he was glorified. Um, It's why the Confederate statues are so controversial today. They're not just a lump of rock that's in a park. It's the image and the likeness of something that is, is not applicable in today's day and age. We don't want to think on them, to remember them, to, to, to dwell on that. It's the image and the likeness. So if that is what it, so if we are the image of God, and that is what it means to be the image of God, to image God forth, I want to talk about the implications that that has on our life. And there's three implications. The first one is being made in the image of God has implications over our self-image. You'll see here that the three implications, I'm going to start really small, now I'm going to go a little bit broader, I'm going to go really broad, okay? So here we're talking about our self-image. If we are made in the image of God, then we, you, me, you're valuable. God doesn't make junk. 
It doesn't matter if you're a believer. It doesn't matter if you're an unbeliever. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what choices you've made. It doesn't matter how low you've gone. Like, if you are made in the image of God, which you are, then you're valuable by nature, just automatic. And I, I unfortunately think that the, um, I'm not going to say the church, I think many Christians that I've known and experienced um, they sometimes struggle with this. The, the topic that comes to mind right now is abortion, where Christians are very passionate about the fact that um, if we're all made in the image of God, which I believe, even the unborn, which I also believe, then that is sacred, that there's a sense of sacredness there. But the people who make those choices, there's still sacredness there too. And we tend to alienate the people who make bad choices, right? Like, we want to shame them. We want to say, we want to call them, call them a murderer kind of thing. And when we're talking about self-image, it doesn't matter what choice you've made. It doesn't. You can make the most awful choice. You're still made in the image of God. You can't abandon the fact that you're made in the image of God. If you are made in the image of God, you're valuable. You're valuable to him. You're valuable, period. Second implication. Being made in the image of God has implications over how we treat others. So we've started with ourself, right? Our self-image. It has implications over our self-image. If, if I'm in the image of God, then I'm valuable, and I'm sacred. And if that's true for me, then it has to be true for the person right here, and the person right here, and the person right here, and the person right here. It's true for all of those around us. And so it has implications over how we treat others. C.S. Lewis has um, an incredible book called The Weight of Glory, and he talks about this. A quote, actually, that he has, I wrote it down because I don't have it memorized. The weight of your neighbor's glory is a burden you should put on your back every day, and only humility will carry it. It's this idea that everyone you come into contact with bears the image of God just like you do, and therefore, they deserve, they demand respect. You approach them with sacredness. This is the image of the creator of the universe in front of you. No matter what they've done, no matter how low they've gone, you approach them with that type of dignity. This, is a, this can be a hard truth on the Sunday before Election Tuesday. All right, let's zoom out a little bit more now. What's the third implication? Being made in the image of God has implications over our civil rights. So I've gone from yourself to your neighbor to now to the broader humanity, this idea that all humans, everyone who's a part of humanity, no matter your nationality, no matter your race, no matter your gender, no matter your sexuality, no matter your class, no matter anything, everyone has unalienable rights that you cannot trample on. And might be quoting the Constitution there, except, or the Declaration, except for the fact that I don't give credit to the United States for authoring that. We have a horrible history of not having civil rights. I don't give the United States credit for that. I don't even give Western civilization the credit for that. I don't give Greek philosophers the credit for civil rights. I have here another quote from Aristotle. Some races were born to be slaves. Aristotle. It can't be Greek philosophy who comes up with civil rights. Now, I'm, I'm oversimplifying this, but this question of like where do civil rights come from is actually, it's kind of throwing the high levels of academia for a loop right now. Like this idea of like, okay, we know that there's civil rights. We know that there's undeniable rights inside of everyone, that they're valuable and that they're sacred and that we can't trample on those rights. 
But if there's no one to give authority to those rights, if there's no one to author those rights, then how do we prove that they're civil rights? And so there's a small group of scholars who are getting a lot of attention right now. Martin Luther King Jr. was actually a part of this group here that believes the idea of civil rights didn't come from the United States, it didn't come from Western civilization, it didn't come from the Greek philosophers, it came from the Bible, that you are imago Dei, that you are in the image of God, and because of that you have rights. And then it infiltrated Europe and later the United States and America, North America, through churches, glory church. We have the ability to infiltrate Kansas City with this idea that our neighbors, our community, ourselves are in the our Imago Dei. All right, so on the next slide here, I have the problem statement, right? Like, if we are all images of God radiating his glory, then why is the world so messed up? Like, why in 2020 are we still having to protest? And why in 2020 do we still have divorces? And why in 2020 do we still have elections that are really scary and we have no idea what the results are going to be? We don't even know if there's going to be results right after the election. Like, if this is the reality that we're all image bearers of God... And that has implications on ourself, it has implications on how we treat others, it has implications for our civil rights, then why is the world so messed up? I want to put another word in there, but I can't because I'm preaching up on stage. Why is it so messed up? And it's for two re well, not just for two reasons, but I found, I found two things that I think contribute to this. And on the next slide, you see that we are created by a relational and spiritual God, okay? So I, when I, what do I mean by relational? God is relational. You can see this in the Trinity. You can see this in Genesis when he says, um, then God said, let us make man. Let us. He's talking to himself, but not in a crazy kind of way. He's in relations. He's got, he's got God the Father. He's got God the Son. He's got God the Spirit. That's the Trinity. So he's a relational God. You also have uh, that he's spiritual, what do I mean by spiritual? I mean that he radiates glory onto himself. In Isaiah 48, 11, um, I'm going to butcher it, but it says something along the lines of, this is my own glory, I give it to no one, when talking about turning people into, uh, refining people like silver. This is my own glory, I give it to no one. So he's relational, and he's spiritual, and he created us with those same natural attributes. We cannot deny our relational attributes, our relational nature. We are relational. We are the sum of our relationships. This is why when you're a kid, the worst punishment is to get grounded, right? Like literally for a whole week, you get all your relationships chopped out of your life. You get no friends. You get no technology. You get no uh, PlayStation. Like you get everything removed. You just have to sit in your room with yourself. And that goes against the very fiber of who you are because you're meant to be in relationship. We're also spiritual image, or we're also spiritual beings. That means that we are born to worship. We are born to glorify something outside of us. Uh, other pastors have referred to us as mirrors, and I think that's a great example because, like a mirror, we can reflect light. We can light up a room as a mirror, but there has to be a source outside of ourselves. If you were to put a mirror inside of a dark room with no lights, no matter how hard that mirror tries, no matter how many self help books the mirror reads, or how many times it looks deep inside of itself and it says, You are light, you have light inside of you, it's not going to light up the room. It has to have an outside light. So we're relational and we're spiritual.
Where did it go wrong? Next slide, please. As relational beings, we are created to be filled up with things outside of ourselves. Next one. As spiritual beings, we are created to be significant, to reflect and radiate a glory outside of ourselves. And then here's the, the line that if you are taking notes, and if you're not taking notes, write this down, type this down. I want you to think about this this week. I just realized it's a question. I put a period at the end, but that's fine. How we fulfill our relational need and where we receive our spiritual significance or glory will either spread life or bring death. So if you want to know why the world is so messed up today, even in the reality of the fact that we're all image bearers of God, that we're all valuable, it's because every single one of us struggles filling our life up with relationships that's not God. And every single one of us struggle being a mirror for something that's not God. We want to be a mirror for the money that we have so we can radiate how wealthy we are and how stable we are. We want to be a mirror for the job that we have so we can radiate how uh, successful you are. We want to be, uh, we want to radiate things that aren't God. Um, I want to use my marriage as an example real quick. I think that the reason why the divorce rate in this country is nearing 60% is because of this reason right here. That if I was to look at my wife, Olivia, and say that, you, that she is going to fulfill all of my relational needs, that I'll never, ever need anything else in a relationship, and from her, she'll have all of my significance, all of my spiritual needs, I will crush her. I will give her a burden that she cannot bear, and our marriage will die. It will bring death. But if I fulfill my relational need with the creator, the image whom I bear, and if I find my significance and my worship and my spiritual need in the creator, the image whom I bear, then it doesn't matter what Olivia does, right? Like, she is now independent. Everything good that she does for me, every moment of service, every act of kindness, every moment she's patient for me just fills me up. And I don't need to depend on that because I have the one whom I, whom, whose image I bear. So I want to wrap this up now with this question. Whose image do you bear? Give to God what is God's. As we go to the polls on Tuesday, and the worship band can start coming on up. As we go to the polls on Tuesday, I want you to think about that as you're standing in line. And if you've already voted, then great. Good for you. I'm glad. I want everyone to vote. But whose image do you bear? And give to God what is God's. And after the election, no matter who wins, remember that politics, nations, civilizations, they're all mortal. They'll all come to an end. The only thing that's immortal, the only thing is the soul that's sitting to your left and to your right and in front of you. Those are immortal. So are you you really going to allow division of a mortal thing to come in between two immortal souls. Think about that. Whose image do you bear? Give to God what is God's. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for um, everyone who attended today, Lord. Um, I pray for this country. I pray for our nation as we go to the polls. Lord, I pray that every day you work on our hearts and every moment you remind us to face you, Lord, with, with unveiled faces that we see you and we find our relational need in you, Lord. Like mirrors, we, we pivot and we face you, Lord, so we can radiate your glory out into the world. Lord, thank you for this morning. In your name, amen.
Thanks for listening to the Glory Podcast. For more information about this message or Glory Church, please visit glorychurchkc.com.